Well, we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 4, starting at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honour on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Thanks, Bridget. G'day, everyone. It's great to be with you this afternoon. Uh, my name's Sam. I'm one of the, the ministry team here. I lead our uni church congregation that meets at six. Uh, it's a joy to be with you today exploring this uh, wonderful part of the Bible together. And here's, here's the kind of the part of our experience as followers of Jesus that I think is in view in this passage, uh, part of why God's put this here for us in his word. How does our sin affect our relationship with God when we're believers in Jesus, when we're Christians? How do we come to God when we've stuffed up? We kind of know the, the, I guess, the experience or the, the feeling of this question, right? How do you think about yourself and about God when your sin is occupying your view? Maybe at times you've done, and this is what I've often done in my life, just kind of avoided God for a little while, not prayed for a little while, not spent time in God's word for a little while, Just waiting until that sin feels distant enough or or not bad enough or far enough in the rearview mirror to come back to God again and kind of pick up where you left off. Or maybe your your prayer life becomes fixated on that sin and you you can't bring other things in your life, can't bring requests to God because all that you can think about and pray about is that sin that you're all too aware of. Well, the, the answer that this passage gives us to that experience, the kind of question of that experience, is that for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who are, who are Christians, our sin is no barrier between us and God. 
So that's, that's my deep hope and prayer for our time together now, that we would believe, not just know in our heads, but believe and experience and feel that our sin does not make God love us any less. Your sin does not stop God hearing your prayers. Your sin is not a barrier between you and God. The author of of Hebrews has his own way of putting this, right? It's in verse 16. Have a look there if you've got your Bible or the news sheet that you've got on the way in. It says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. He wants them to know, God wants us to know, that we can approach God with confidence. And one author called this passage like the heartbeat of Jesus Christ. There are many amazing insights from throughout Scripture into the nature of who God is, who Jesus is. This passage points straight to Jesus' heart. How does he feel about us? What is his love for us like? And so we're going to dig into two kind of key truths, very related truths, from verses 14 to 16 especially, about Jesus as our great high priest and how he loves us. So we'll refer to to the verses in chapter 5 a bit as we go through. They're kind of unpacking what it means for Jesus to be our great high priest, but we'll especially focus on 14 to 16. So um, kind of cast your eyes over those verses, have those in the front of your view. If you're a note taker, uh, these could be your two headings potentially. His work is for you and his heart is for you. So first, let's, let's talk about Jesus' work for you as your great high priest. The word priest is one that we still use today, right? I'm an Anglican priest. Uh, Nat and Alex and John are Anglican priests. I have this strange experience sometimes. If I'm meeting someone at the moment in my life, I'm meeting kinder parents, and when they ask me what I do, if I say I'm a priest, there's one of two ways that they usually respond to that. First is they, they'll apologise for having sworn in our conversation up till that point. Or they kind of outline for me their religious resume. Right? They'll tell me, oh, I went to Catholic school or my grandmother's an Anglican or whatever. My uncle is a minister. I don't know why that's how people feel like they have to react to me as a priest, but that's, that's what they do. Sadly, of course, today many people hear the word priest as a, a suspicious word because of what priests have done. But all of that is a very different view of priests to the world that these early Christians were living in. For them, priests were a really important part of their lives, of their community, of their their relationship with God, their their identity. So I'm going to try to help put us in the shoes of these ancient Jews who'd become Christians in their understanding of priests and how that helps us understand Jesus. So let's imagine together, we'll do a kind of a thought exercise, let's imagine that we are faithful, God-fearing ancient Israelites. How, How do we approach God? How do we relate to Yahweh? What is our what is our religious life, our inner life look like? 
Well, we go to the temple. Some of us might have to walk for days to get there, depending on where we're from, but this is what we do. We go to the temple and we bring things with us. We bring animals, we bring grain, we bring oil, we bring different things to sacrifice to God at the temple. Some of us are rich, we bring more. Some of us are poor, we bring less. And we we get to Jerusalem, it's on the top of a hill, the temple's in the middle of the city. It's a very visual kind of climax of the worship of our people. And we approach the temple, and before we get there, we can hear it and we can smell it. There's the sound of animals, the sound of thousands of people jostling around. We can see blood splattered all over the place. We can smell burning meat. And and we get there, we go in, and we enter what's called the outer court. This is like the kind of grounds around the temple. Ladies, this is as far as you can come. Gentiles, this is as far as you can come. Anyone who's ceremonially unclean, this is as far as you can come. But while, while we wait out in the outer courts, there's lots to do there. It's busy, it's packed with people. There's stalls there that are selling food, selling souvenirs, There are people selling animals that you can sacrifice, people exchanging currency. It's a really busy market kind of vibe in the outer courts of the temple. Men can go a little further, but then we stop too. And beyond there, it's the realm of the priests. Whatever we've brought to sacrifice to God, we we hand it over to the priests, and they take it past where we are allowed to go. They take it to one of the altars, and they sacrifice it there. If it's an animal we've brought, the animal will be killed on the altar, along with hundreds of other animals that day, day after day after day, year after year after year. Beyond those altars where we see the priests sacrificing the animals, we can see the main building of the temple there in the distance. That's the holy place. That's where only the priests get to go. Inside that building in the holy place, there's some really precious uh, key things. There's a lampstand. There's the table where incense is burned. There's another table that has the bread of the presence of God on it. We, We never see that, right? We've never seen behind those huge pillars and the huge doors. We've been taught what's in there, but we never see it. Only the priests go in there. And once a year, only once a year, year after year after year, one priest on one day goes through that building, through the holy place, and he approaches the massive curtain that's hanging at the back of it. It's huge. It towers over you. And the curtain's covered in designs of a garden. And in the center of the curtain is two enormous angels with flaming swords, like the angels that barred Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. They bar anyone from coming past the curtain, going beyond that holy place. Except for this one time, once a year, where one guy, the high priest, after an exhausting and elaborate process of ritual cleansing of himself, gets to go behind the curtain into the most holy place, the place where God is. 
He goes in on the Day of Atonement and he takes in the blood of a bull to offer for his own sin and the sin of his family and the blood of a goat for the sin of the whole people and he takes in incense to burn in there. Famously, he goes in right with a rope tied around his ankle so that if anything goes wrong, if he's not clean enough or if he does something wrong in there and he's struck dead by God, we can pull him out. We don't want to have to wait until next year to get the body out, right? That's what it looks like for us to relate to God. What do you think that experience would be like? How different would that be to what your relationship with God looks like? As ancient Israelites, we come to God relate to him through layers of protection, through these veils, right? Not, not protecting God, but protecting us. Because if we come into his presence, if we get too close to him, we'll be dead. As one of my kids' books puts it, because of your sin, you can't come in. Because of your sin, you can't come in. And don't get me wrong, right, this whole sacrificial system at the temple, this is an act of God's grace. This is his kindness. This is his goodness to us. God's not obliged to relate to us at all. But he gives the temple, he gives the sacrificial system as a way for people to relate to him. But it's veiled. And it's into that scene, into that worship practice, into that very location that Jesus arrives. The word became flesh. God became human. Jesus lived as one of us. And then he brought the ultimate sacrifice of his own body, his own life, becoming both the priest and the sacrifice for sin. His ministry was a priestly ministry, right? Think of the things that Jesus did during his time teaching on earth. He, he healed people. He made them clean so that they could go to the temple. He taught people about right worship of God. He forgave sin. He did priestly things. But unlike other priests, Jesus never sinned. Verse 15. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And that, that makes him uniquely suitable to be our high priest. That means he can do something for us that that high priest going in there once a year could never do for us. Because he's truly one of us, yet he's without sin. Look, look really closely at verse 15 with me in, in your new sheet or your Bible there. So it says, right, for, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. That's a, that's a double negative, right? So he's saying we have a high priest who can feel sympathy for our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Right? Tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Those two truths together, that's why he can be our uniquely suitable great high priest. 
That's what qualifies him in a way that nobody else is qualified to bring us to God. Jesus knows what it is to be tempted by sin. Tempted in every way, just as we are. And that, that matters. That makes a big difference. That's, that's really important. Because right? sometimes we think that Jesus can't really understand us because he never sinned. Right? There's parts of my experience that Jesus hasn't shared, so how can he really understand me? But imagine that your fight against sin is like swimming across a wide and, and fast-flowing river. Sometimes you make it a little way into the river, sometimes you make it a bit further, but you never make it across to the other side of the river. Jesus is the only one who made it all the way to the other side of the river, and that makes him the only one who truly understands the extent of temptation. He can truly sympathize with our weaknesses. Or, or you could ask, which, which weightlifter better knows the full burden of the weight? The one who can lift it to their knees or maybe to their chest before dropping it? Or the one who can lift it all the way above their arms and hold it there? Jesus knows the weight, the burden of temptation, even beyond what we do. C.S. Lewis wrote about this, and he put it this way. He said, we all give in to sin before it reaches its full force. But Jesus, in never giving in, experiences the full force of every temptation. So hear this. He knows your temptation in its fullness. If you are fighting what feels like a losing battle with lust, know that Jesus experienced temptation. Every bit as real as you, and he never indulged it. He never gave in. He crossed the river of temptation so he can truly sympathize with you. If you're struggling with, with bitterness and hatred, he felt and fought and defeated temptation. If you find yourself tempted to please people instead of God, so was Jesus, and he never gave in. No exceptions. He gets you, and he can truly represent God for you because of his own perfect sacrifice. That's Jesus' work for you, his priestly work on your behalf. And that work is, is applied, it's, it's made effective, it's put into practice because he's gone ahead of you, it's gone ahead of us into heaven, right? Verse 14 says, our high priest has ascended into heaven, the place of God's dwelling, the place that that whole temple thing just pointed towards. Jesus, our great high priest, has gone through the courts, through the holy place, into the most holy place, into the presence of God, the place where God is to give us access, to take us in. You can approach the throne of grace with confidence, God says to us here, because you have Jesus 
and he is sitting down at the right hand of God, leaning across, interceding for you. We're dealing with kind of, I guess, theological truths, points here, right? But how should this land in our hearts? What difference should this make to us? What does this mean for our experience of life as believers in Jesus? Well, remember that that author said that these words are like the heartbeat of Jesus Christ. God placed this passage in the Bible so that we might approach God with confidence. This is here so that you would know that your sin is no barrier between you and God. And so that you would would feel that deep down. So, So let's talk then about Jesus' heart for you. Here's, here's the kind of, here's the question of it, I guess. How does Jesus feel about your sin? Right, he's, he's fully human in every way. He has emotions. How does he feel about your sin? When you sin, what is Jesus' emotional response to that? Well, if, if you're anything like me, then probably your natural response is to think that when you sin, Jesus is disappointed in you. He's frustrated that you keep doing this. He feels let down by you. That he's fed up with your inability to leave this sin behind. After all, that, that's how I feel about myself, right? Right? But Jesus isn't like that. That's not his heart. Look at verse 15 again. We do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. The old King James Version of the Bible translated that word weaknesses as infirmities. He he feels sympathy for our suffering, our our weaknesses, our limitations, and our sin. Our sin is part of this picture. What does that mean? Well, there's a a really helpful illustration that's often used to help us get this. We get any any physicists or or science teachers in the room? Anyone uh, know what sympathetic resonance is? Yeah, yeah. Okay, we've got a couple who are into sympathetic resonance. So sympathetic resonance occurs when you've got two instruments, right? Uh, Classically tuning forks, or maybe you've got pianos. If we had two pianos in the room here, and I played a note on one piano, the the string of the equivalent note in the other piano would, would resonate, would begin to vibrate in sympathy with the other piano. That's sympathetic resonance. You get this resounding tone between the two instruments. And in Christ himself, there there is a a sympathetic resonance with you, with us, with our hearts. So that when the strings of your human heart are touched by temptation, Jesus' heart is, is touched with yours. His human nature resonates with yours. 
He sympathizes with you, even though he himself never sinned. He's not disappointed in you. His heart for you is not one of judgment or frustration or turning away. No, even in in the very moments of your sin, his heart is for you, breaking with yours, longing with yours that you would be free from sin. That's, That's what he was like on earth, wasn't it? That's what we see when we read the Gospels. When Jesus interacts with people, it's never condemnation for the sinner. It's, it's compassion, it's forgiveness, it's, it's grace, it's restoration. That's Jesus' heart for sinners. And his heart is the same now. The first time that my daughter had gastro, I sat with her in bed as her little body heaved and as she shook with sobs, stroked her hair through her confusion and her pain and her fear. What what was my heart for her in her weakness? Not disappointment, but, but love. Deep love, hating the sickness, loving the child. And that's God's heart for you in in your sin. He knows how sin entangles you. He knows that it weighs you down. He knows your weakness. And his heart breaks for you. He hates the sin, but he loves you. So, brothers and sisters, you can approach the throne of grace with confidence. You can approach God with confidence. If you are trapped in sin, God does not love you any less. He does not listen to your prayers any less. That sin is no barrier in your access to God. Because Jesus resonates with our weakness, we resonate with his strength. His strength becomes ours, right? His place in heaven becomes ours. He takes us by the hand from the outer courts and he leads us into God's very presence. Because he resonates with our sin, we resonate with his perfection. Because he resonates with our sorrow, we resonate with his joy. So bring your prayers to God with confidence. Tonight, bring your prayers to God with confidence. Your Father loves to listen to your prayers. So let's, let's do that now. Let's approach the throne of grace with confidence. Let's pray together now so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's pray. Jesus, our great high priest, we praise you, we thank you for making a way for us to be with God. Thank you for your sacrifice for our sin. Thank you for making us new. Thank you for bringing our prayers always and even now to God our Father in heaven. 
We thank you, Jesus. We worship you and we love you. Amen. Amen.